but you're just talking about in your opinion like sold out to the medical model is can that be included or yeah you could include it i i think it's absolutely true yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> So today, my guest, I have Douglas Brunlin. He, I have him on here to talk with us about integrative systemic therapy, IST. Um, Douglas, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm excited for this discussion. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, IST? <laughs> sure. Uh, I have to put this in a timeline, Daniel, because currently where I am, I would describe as the, the sort of sunset of my career. So a couple of years ago, I was still the program director for a master's in marriage and family therapy at Northwestern University, hmm. which I had done for 11 years. And prior to that, I'd been the chief operating officer at the facility called the Family Institute at Northwestern. Uh, and prior to that, I was at the Institute for Juvenile Research where I ran the Family Systems Program. So I have a lot of administrative experience behind me and uh, where that's relevant to IST is it involved teaching students uh, at various levels and really trying to figure out what it was that made them better students and better prepared to enter the field of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that's important about those three institutions is I was exposed to pretty high-level people at each of them. Mm -hmm. So my career has always been blessed by being surrounded by uh, very top-level people who had prominent positions in the field of marriage and family therapy. So. Mm -hmm. None of what I'm going to talk about today comes from a vacuum where I created it and take sole responsibility for it. It's all collaborative work. And I believe that compared to people who created a, a model out of whole cloth from their perspective, uh, IST is more solid in the sense that it involves the contributions of some really, really well-known people who have thought about systemic work uh, and integration for decades. Oh, uh, nice. Can I, um, my current practica site, this is my first time doing some couples and family work. Sure. And so I've been reading a little bit about family psychotherapy and getting acquainted with all of the models. Um, the first thing that that makes me think of, I, this, so I don't remember if it's structural family therapy, uh, but I know that there are some models that kind of like that is very collaborative. They bring in a lot of different people in order to create the model. Yeah. Okay. That's what, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. Mnuchin, who created structural family therapy and is identified with it, he had some really smart people working with him oh, okay. uh, for a long period of time. One of them was Jay Haley and Braulio Montavo and oh. others. So, yeah, that model didn't come about just through Mnuchin's head. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. So, yeah, you're in this these three different universities surrounded by a lot of smart people as well. And so how did you guys... How did you guys kind of band together to decide, hey, look, we need to create this new type of model? Well, there's a couple of stepping stones that lead up to IST. Uh, the first big one, I think, is I was at the Institute for Juvenile Research working with Dick Schwartz and Betty McCune Carr, both household names in family therapy. And we were running a postgraduate training program for people who had already graduated from college, but that was back in the 70s, and family therapy wasn't being taught in universities to any great extent. So mm -hmm. people were coming out of their training programs, hearing about family therapy and wanting to know something about it. And so they 
they came to postgraduate training. And we were running a postgraduate program, and uh, students were clamoring. And we were teaching a blend of structural, strategic, Milan, systemic, and students were a little bit confused about how that all fit together. And so one day I sat down with Dick and Betty, and I said, hey, you know what? What if we tried to do something that put these things together in a way that made more sense to the students? Uh, and that's where uh, MetaFrameworks got born. And okay. MetaFrameworks, a uh, precursor to IST, that book goes all the way back to 1992. Uh, so we got a contract. The book is titled MetaFrameworks, Transcending the Models of Family Therapy. It looks at ways to go beyond uh, the traditional models of family therapy so that people can move among them. And the key ingredient there was the concept of a meta framework, which meant that you could distill from the models something about something, say organization. So Mnuchin had his own view of what organization is. He called it structure, and he had ways of dealing with structure, but Haley had ways of dealing with structure, and Madonna's had ways of dealing with structure, Bowen had ways of dealing with structure. So we proposed, well, if it's structure, why not just call it structure and let the <laughs> therapist get at the case vis-a-vis -vis structure rather than having to go through a model and then get to structure. Hmm. So that book was published in 1992, and I don't know, I was probably in... Uh, 1999 or 2000, that Bill Pinsoff, who was at the rival institution in Chicago, the Family Institute, mm -hmm. sat down with me and said, why don't you come over here? Uh, and he had written a book called Integrative Problem-Centered Therapy, where he tried to integrate the models of therapy. And so we, we had common ground, and uh -huh. we we worked together, and we created a graduate program that was integrative and systemic. And then probably in 2016, uh, we got serious and said, you know, we've got to codify this in some way. So we put together a task force that involved Bill and myself and Bill Russell, who was my right-hand man in the graduate program, and Jay LeBeau, who had spent decades in his own career focusing on integration, and a couple of other people's, Anthony Chambers and uh, Cheryl Rampage. And we met every week for two years trying to hammer out what uh, an integrative systemic approach would look like. Hmm. And we published the book in 2018. Uh, an interesting caveat of that is we originally tried to squish together something from Bill's book title and something from our book title huh. and called it Integrative Problem-Centered Metaframeworks. But our handlers said to us, nobody knows what you mean when you say that. So <laughs> every model of therapy that's going anywhere has three letters, EFT, IST, IF, you know, IFS. Yeah. So we had to come up with three letters. And at the end of the day, it was Integrative Systemic Therapy, oh. and the APA published that book in 2018. Oh, okay. And That's a big deal. That was a big deal, yeah. yeah. So. Wow, okay. Yeah, that uh, if you read, especially across, not even just family therapy, but like, you know, between CBT and all the, the uh, yeah, EFT, if you, they all have a different, way of saying the same thing or the yeah same concept so that that meta frameworks model that that makes a lot of sense that's that's really neat that do you know of anyone be i guess you you guys are the first ones to come up with with pulling the concepts out of all these different models and making it into a one type of here it is yeah yeah wow that is that's a big deal that's cool well you know, we, we have to remember that this is America, or the United States, I should say. I just got back from two-week Spanish immersion program uh -huh. where it was drilled into me that 
America is from Canada all the way down to the tip of South America. <laughs> so we're kind of arrogant when we walk around calling ourselves American. Uh, we should do that. But anyway, <laughs> with that little aside, um, I lost my train of thought. Where were you transcending me? Yeah, I was talking about how you guys are the first ones to, to oh, yeah. take. Yeah. yeah, you know, the reason I said something about this country huh. is it's uh, individualistic, mm. capitalistic, market-based uh economy uh-huh. and so everybody is trying to make a buck on something uh-huh. and so to have something that transcends is to give away your buck uh and so like sue johnson markets eft all over the place and uh-huh. she wants people to be eft therapist uh-huh. and she wants eft to be doing it like cbt dbt they're all doing the same thing and you have to give up something and i think Part of what made it possible for us to give it up is we had this group of collaborators who none of us were completely invested in having created a model of therapy. So if we could bring it together, let's bring it together. And that's why I think it's it's somewhat unique in the field. Hmm. Yeah. Um, my mind's kind of going in different directions right now. I... I... I spoke with Dr. George Sobershots. He have you heard of control mastery theory? I've heard of it. I don't know a lot yeah. about it. He he talks about his main interest is trying to understand what makes psychotherapy work. Um and so my question was with you was I was thinking you guys said you said that you weren't you weren't really invested in any one model and you could see how different models might be applied to different people and that this model might work better with this family this model might work better with this family um so have you found what it is across models that seems to work (laughs) well i mean the research is very clear about this that the common factor that most predicts outcome is the therapeutic alliance. Hmm. And in some studies, it's upwards to 30% of the variance. So you can't do psychotherapy and be successful if you can't have an alliance. Hmm. And we looked at this, and this is where Bill Pinsoff's idea of a problem focus becomes so essential that if you anchor your therapy to what the clients want to achieve, you build the alliance because the alliance is an amalgamation of task, goals, and bonds. And we always think about alliance having something to do with the bond you form with the clients. But if if you're not aligned with the goals that they have, Mm -hmm. and if you're not aligned with how they want to get there, your alliance is going to suffer. Mm -hmm. And we've developed alliance measures at the Family Institute that are quite sophisticated and you can easily see when you have a good alliance with somebody and when you don't and it is often about you're not doing in the therapy what i want to get done Hmm. Uh, so ist is grounded in the notion that you ask the clients what are you here for what can i help you with rather than i'm a cbt therapist I'm going to help you get better by applying CBT to whatever you're bringing through the door. Uh-huh. You know, a lot uh-huh. of people don't do well with CBT. A lot of people don't mm-hmm. do well with a lot of models. And mm-hmm. if you're not prepared to be flexible with them, you know, it's a, there's a reason why 70% of all therapies seem to work when we forget about the 30% that doesn't work. Mm. Something's going wrong there. Yeah, I read I I read that actually, I think in the book it said it said like well across, you know, either C B T, EFT, they help two thirds of the people that they see, but then a third, yeah, what do you do with the other third? Yeah. Yeah. You just try That's harder right. if you're into yeah. a you you know, you keep oh. counterproductive because the clients are already saying, Hey, 
this isn't helping me. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's a very good. That's I remember when I was first coming into school, and I I worked with a supervisor who was uh, he was very like eclectic, very he tried to be integrative, and I remember wondering. Um, I remember wondering, is this just kind of because you don't know any one model well enough? So when you come across an instance where it's like, uh, this doesn't seem to be helping, I'm just going to switch to this other, I'm going to pull from this other modality. Is that just because you don't know it well enough? Or if you really did know the model well enough, would you, would you, but, but it seems to be, that was when I was first starting, um. And I think that, especially first starting, I found more security and all I got to do, if I learn this one model well enough, I'll be able to help. Right. Uh, yeah, I can learn my way to success, you know. Um, so that kind of reaffirms that it's not just about knowing one model. And if you're only seeing your client through one lens, you're going to be missing a lot. Well, you made two really important points, um, Daniel. One uh, was about eclecticism. Mm -hmm. And David Orlinsky, famous researcher on psychotherapy at the University of Chicago, did a longitudinal study of psychotherapists and tried to figure out what their growth path looked like once they were finished with college. And every single one, for the most part, moved in the direction of integration. And okay. so they may have called themselves eclectic, but what they were searching for was some way to do more than one thing. Mm. And what IST brings that I think is better than eclecticism is a more systematic way to make your choices. Mm. As opposed to, I think about eclecticism as a toolkit that, you have by your side and when a hammer isn't working you might pick up a saw or when a saw is not working you might pick up a screwdriver but you're kind of fumbling around trying to find the fit whereas IST has a lot of uh, material that guides you toward the fit. Hmm. That's a good point that's interesting is there okay so IST we've talked a lot about kind of what was lacking, why you guys kind of developed this integrative model, uh, meta frameworks. Um, can you maybe give a definition of integrative systemic therapy? And aside from the fact that it, it, it pulls out the structure and the different concepts and components of all models, how is it different? Maybe what sets it apart? Yeah, how is it defined? Well, I think the, the the name says a lot about answering that question. Uh, first of all, it's integrative, which means that it tries to transcend the models. Uh, and secondly, it's systemic. And as we've named various kinds of models, uh, they are more or less systemic. Like CBT, for instance, Generally, you do CBT, you bring a client who's anxious or depressed into your office, and the boundaries of your work center around the cognitive processes of the client. So they don't look at the context in which the client resides, the family, the work context, the network of peers. Uh, when you're systemic, you're ecological in the Brenner sense of the word. You're looking at the entire ecology and asking yourself, when and why would I start my CBT with an individual, but then perhaps say, you know what, I think we should bring your wife in because you get anxious whenever you have an argument with her. Uh, and what is that all about? We could, we could try and solve this problem at one end, you, but we could also try to solve this problem by looking at what is it about the interaction between you and your wife that's generating all this anxiety. Mm. And maybe the client simply doesn't know how to stand up to his wife in a 
more adult-to-adult conversation and gets bowled over and feels paralyzed. That generates the anxiety. Well, you can't really help that person simply by helping them get more cognitively restructured and strong because it's part of the relationship. Hmm. By the way, uh, lots of studies have shown that couples therapy for a person who's depressed is just as effective as CBT for a couple for a person who's depressed. Oh, okay, wow. And you you've got a, a twofer going there because you know a lot of times people don't talk about their therapy with their spouse. They kind of keep yeah. it off on the side, and so the spouse is in the dark about what's my partner really working on, yeah. and it's much better for them to know because the client is evolving and we think so should the the relationship uh-huh i wonder you mentioned studies that show that it's just as effective i wonder if they would if they looked at a relapse i i imagine that because i've heard of you know cbt now builds in relapse prevention because relapse was kind of a big deal and uh I imagine that if you do CBT with an individual and they have good outcomes versus doing CBT with a couple and they have good outcomes, I imagine the couple would have less relapse. Well, Uh, if they've changed their rules of engagement uh and they believe that the new rules of engagement are fostering a more intimate, harmonious relationship, Hmm. then they're positively reinforced to do that. Uh And, you know, in IST, we talk about couples coming in and they bring with them a problem sequence. They're doing things in such a way that they're always getting themselves into relational hot water. Uh And we try to help them. We don't suggest it. We help them collaborate and create what we call a solution sequence. And that's a way to go about things in their relationship that leads to a better outcome. And, yeah, when the solution sequence is found to work, uh, reinforcing it and making sure that uh, they continue to apply it is really important. Hmm. But, you know, I always tell people there's no cure for life. Uh, And so you get yourself into a better place at a particular point in the timeline of your development. But 10 years from now, when you've got two teenagers who are causing you all kinds of trouble, (laughs) are the solutions that you found then going to apply to raising teenagers? Not so much. Uh, I talk about the the Fram oil filter commercial. You're too young to remember this, but (laughs) there's this, guy's a mechanic he's standing in front of a big engine and he says see this engine my client just paid me 500 bucks to fix it see this filter cost five bucks if he had come to me and changed his oil filter he never would have had to have his engine rebuilt so i say to people come back to me before things get bad Uh we'll we'll do a tune-up and to me, that's the kind of relapse prevention that IST people have built into their way of thinking about therapy. Okay. Today, 70% of my caseload are former clients returning for an episode of therapy that they got stuck on a point in life where they didn't know how to deal with it. Hmm. They had a loss or they got diagnosed with an illness or... They got divorced, and you can work and work and work, but sometimes the the templates that they learn in their original episode of therapy mm-hmm. are not adequate to help with these new problems. Yeah, and that 70% of your caseload that speaks volumes to your therapeutic alliance. Exactly, because <laughs> people can, I get people all the time because of my age who've been in tons of therapy 
and I always ask them, so what kept you from just going back to see your your previous therapist? Yeah. And they always say, my previous therapist took sides or my previous therapist uh, just listened. Uh, they want somebody who's going to roll their proverbial sleeves up and engage with them in an active problem-solving exercise. Yeah. And that's that's kind of what IST people are knowing for and why a lot of people say, okay, we have another issue. Let's go back to Doug. Yeah, yeah. good. Is, uh, does IST have like a typical 8 to 12 sessions type of framework? Well, IST, you know, they're the pillars of IST and there is kind of like the conceptual foundation of the approach. And so there's an epistemological pillar. That's the nature of reality. There's an ontological pillar. That's the nature of things. There's a sequences pillar, a causality pillar. But the pillar that's really important is the constraint pillar. And we're somewhat unique in how we look at what makes people tick because if you're asked the question, why do you lie all the time? Would you rather answer that question or the question, what keeps you from telling the truth? Hmm. So the constraint question is the second one. Uh -huh. That if you look at people, classic example, you'll hear this over and over again in couples therapy. Why did you call me before you came home for work? I, I don't trust you. Well, that person is calculating. If I call my wife up and say, hey, I'm going to be a couple hours late, she's going to foster all kinds of fears. If I try to finesse it and don't tell her, I have less chance of getting in trouble. Uh -huh. So what kept you from telling the truth? And what you find is when you try to implement a solution sequence, and you have trouble doing it, the next thing you do is start to look for the constraints. What's mm -hmm. keeping this couple from being able to implement a perfectly normal uh, solution sequence? Mm -hmm. that, uh, that makes me think so that kind of naturally goes along with the way that I, I view therapy as I view perhaps people. This is maybe like a positive view of human nature, but people have the tendency or proclivity to grow naturally. There are just at times they get blocked. And so I think if I can remove the block, they'll grow. Right. Um, but I've never thought, I've never thought of the next step being, okay, if that is the case, how can I frame questions to, yeah, what is the block here? What's keeping you from doing that? Right. Um, so I like that. That's cool. That's, that's helpful. Um, the, other, the, the thing that brought that up, the thing that, another thing that brought up for me is I can see that, especially doing couples work or something, if you ask the husband, what got in the way of you calling your wife and being honest with her, if his answer was then, well, uh, I just didn't think that she could handle it or I thought that if I did that she was going to yeah, become fearful, kind of fall apart and then I would have to try and pick up the pieces. I can see that as coming across like blaming her and if she's already feeling like I'm the problem I'm, you know, does that does that, do you run into that? Well, if you only look at it from one angle, uh -huh. you're always at risk for somebody feeling blamed yeah. And the trick of doing any kind of systemic therapy is to be able to navigate the relationship in such a way that both people feel that their perspective is being heard, mm -hmm. that they have a voice in the therapy, and that they have a say about where things are going to go. Mm -hmm. And so you would never want to get to the point where you're at risk of asking that question and the wife is going to say, now you're blaming me. Uh -huh. You've you've not done your job as a therapist if you end up at that juncture. Okay. And you know one of the things that 
IST pays particular attention to is we have this really simple blueprint for therapy that has hypothesizing, planning, conversing, and reading feedback. Hmm. And the way you converse, the intentionality of that is what keeps you focused and systemic and integrative. And when you forget that, then you could easily drift into cul-de-sacs where you're in trouble. Uh-huh. Okay. Can you, uh, so as an example, uh, so that just, I'm thinking it's not just, okay, yeah, maybe when you call and you tell the, and you're honest and you tell your wife, you're going to be a few hours late and then she starts to become fearful in these different things. What is it about and then? It's not really that it's her fault, but what is it? What is it about him telling you that that makes you feel that way? And it's it's like no one's the intentionality behind the conversation is not to lay blame anywhere. Right. It's it's just to is that kind of like what you're getting at. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Um. Can we go? We're talking about it already, but just to kind of clarify the the systemic portion of integrative systemic therapy, um, I think something that I want to highlight is how you mentioned, you know, if you have someone calling you up saying, hey, I want to see a therapist, I'm feeling anxious, uh, normally for someone who doesn't practice IST, let's say, perhaps the chances of them saying, okay, yeah, come on in, we'll see you, and then they just do individual therapy is pretty high. But for an integrative systemic therapist, you're going to be asking, okay, like, are you married? Do you have children? And and you're going to do your best to incorporate the whole family. Is that right? Well, one of the, the guidelines of IST and we have this thing we call the the matrix. If you want to see the issue, it's better if it's in front of you. Hmm. Otherwise, you're relying upon the perspective of one person to tell you what's going on out there. And it's very likely that they're going to have blind spots and you're only going to get part of the picture. And... So if somebody calls me up and says, I'm feeling anxious and depressed, I'm confused about where I am in my marriage, I want to talk to somebody about what I'm going to do, we always have this conversation, well, have you ever thought that it might be beneficial to bring your wife or your husband to the session? Hmm. And so we'll try to build the therapy. Of course, we talked earlier about the alliance so if somebody says, no, 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 I've, I've got to see somebody on my own before I consider bringing in my wife. Well, the Alliance Priority Guideline says don't do something in the therapy that's going to damage the Alliance because that's the thing that's going to get you across the finish line in the long run. So you would grant the client the wish to come in, but it would always be in your head that at some point, I don't think I'm going to be successful with this person's issue without the spouse being part of the, the treatment. Hmm. Yeah. And so uh, let's, say, let's say that you have a client who calls and maybe they've had depression or anxiety for the last 10 years uh, and they're in their early 20s. So it's, it started when they were a child maybe and they've been married for the past three years. Um, and that instance... Would you try and work with them on perhaps where their depression came from? Would you work with them individually? Or is the idea that now they're now that he's they're married and they're a unit, you're gonna focus on how it's impacting the marriage first and then maybe Yeah, how would you approach a situation like that? Well, there's a a ton of ideas uh implied in your question, which is a very good one and you have to unpack a little bit uh, the nature of IST in order to come up with an answer. Huh. 
So one thing I'd like to just lay out for the group listening is that we have this matrix and it has six different levels. It has the level of action, the level of meaning and emotion, the biobehavioral, family of origin, self-representation, and self. And we say that the constraints to solving a problem could be embedded in any one of those levels, hmm. but that the cost-effectiveness guideline says that it's better to start with the most cost-effective approach to therapy and to work your way down the matrix to more expensive ways of doing things hmm. than to start there. Okay. And part of this was created, and it still exists in a number of insurance panels, that you got a case and you were given five sessions to deal with it. Okay, so why would you start a therapy that's going to take two years twice a week, basically 200 sessions, when you only have five sessions to work with. Uh -huh. And if you look at the epidemiology of continuance in therapy, take a guess at what the mean number of sessions is across the board. How often do people actually go to therapy? Yeah. Seven between seven and eight. So every therapist has longer-term cases, but that's a, a fallacy created by the fact that when you're in the position of being a therapist for long enough, you're going to collect around yourself a core of people that want to continue to see you. Hmm. doesn't necessarily mean they need to see you, and it may only be supportive therapy that you're doing, uh -huh. but in general... You have to get out of the chute rather quickly, get down to business, and do your work because 60 to 70% of the people who come to therapy are going to be gone after six to eight sessions. Hmm. And unfortunately, these models that were created to be long-term models and to view depression or anxiety as generated intrapsychically through, say, childhood experience or trauma or whatever, right. it may be necessary to commit that level of energy to get to the constraints related to trauma or early childhood experience, but it shouldn't be the thing that guides you in the get-go. Hmm. And, you know, many of the models of family therapy and couples therapy, particularly family therapy in the heyday of the pioneers, they basically were totally systemic and didn't consider the characteristics of the individual at all. Huh. IST is a therapy designed to do individual couple and family therapy. And so, believe me, I look at a couple that comes to therapy and one of them has been diagnosed with bipolar one disorder, mm -hmm. you better take into account the constraints that come to that relationship as a result of the symptoms of bipolar one, or you're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many people are coming to therapy uh, because one person or another has a condition that they haven't managed very well, and if they don't do something about it, it's going to take down the marriage. Mm -hmm. It's a well-documented fact, Daniel, that one of the highest risk factors for a marriage is when one person has untreated ADHD. Oh, wow. And if, if you don't treat the ADHD then that, that person's hyperactivity, that person's ability to attend, 
to be sensitive, to contribute, is all compromised by the constraints of ADHD. So by no means are we saying that we're going to forget all this other stuff because we think it's not relevant. We're just not going to make the assumption that we must and should focus on that in the outset if we can get the job done in some other way. Yeah. Okay. That's That's... more cost efficient. Yeah. Cost efficient. Yeah. Because remember, we live in a system. We as therapists live in a system. And the institutions we work for, uh, the insurance company, that they're all part and parcel of what we're able to do. Would it make a difference if, let's say, you were at a private practice and you took only cash payment? It, it would make a difference because okay. you would not have to live within the constraints of an insurance yeah. policy. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do because I've been in practice for many years. I've, I've put my stint in in community mental health agencies. I've, you know, I've worked in urban centers. And, and now, you know, I have a clientele that largely pays me out of pocket. And it's it's a lot easier than Diana, who works more with an insurance-based group of clients, and she's always having to take into account the constraints of their insurance. Yeah, yeah, okay. And you, when you get licensed, <laughs> your early trajectory is going to be, you know, through that window. And yeah. Take hope. <laughs> As you grow and mature and develop your reputation, other pathways to do therapy are going to be possible for you. Yeah. Take hope. Um, so you got you guys, you guys set out to transcend the models of therapy. Do you believe that you have done that adequately, and that you have does? Does IST look the way that when you were first envisioning this process, does it look the way that you hoped? Do you think you've done a good job of it? Well, I, I think like anything uh, that's organic and alive, there's a continuous development involved. And, you know, we wrote the Yellow Book in 2018. Uh, It was published. My colleagues and I wrote another book called uh, Integrative Systemic Therapy, a Handbook for uh, Change. That book is looks the same in some ways to the original IST book, but there are wrinkles in it. And there hasn't been anything yet that we say, you know what, we were really wrong about this and we need to just scrap it and go somewhere in a different direction. Mm -hmm. But it's an evolving perspective. And in part it's evolving because there's no codification of a particular way of doing something. You know, there's no manualization of IST the way there is a manualization of DBT or CBT or ACT. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And you guys, you were telling me um, kind of offline about some upcoming books that you have. Can you tell me about a little bit about that? Well, we've created uh, what's called a TFI book series, which is really a set of books that are all devoted to doing something in the realm of therapy uh, through the lens of IST. Mm. So the book that I just mentioned was the first of the series to be published. There's a book that's just coming into the series editors, of which I am one, uh, to be reviewed that's on the supervision of IST. Uh, There's a book on working with individuals using IST. There's a book on working with couples with IST. There's a book on cultural sensitivity with IST. 
Uh, we haven't gone beyond that point, but we envision that when the series is after 10 years from now, there will be 8 to 10 IST-related books on various aspects of IST. Yeah, wow. Wow. That's good. Like even the even supervision. That's so. You, do you have your own kind of like supervisory model that you're working on? Well, yeah. I think the the key thing with uh, training somebody to be an IST therapist hmm. is to make sure that they learn the the gears of the method and the perspective. I should say. And so the there's this thing called the essence diagram, uh, the blueprint, the matrix. We've touched on all of those, the guidelines, the pillars. So through the process of supervision, what you're generally trying to do is over time mold the person so that they adapt a flexible outlook on how they should be doing therapy and therefore... Uh, end up being both systemic and integrative. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're like you, though. You know, they they want somebody to hand them a model. Uh, they want to learn it, and they want to tell themselves, as long as I have this, <laughs> I am armed and ready to go to be a therapist. Yeah. And it's so it's like we believe that whereas Orlinsky found that most therapists do come from their training with one model in mind, they eventually are failure driven. You know, they realize that they have enough experiences where the model doesn't take them all the way and they need to find something else to do. We start out by saying, it's better off if you realize that this is your destiny <laughs> and learn how to be integrative and systemic now because yeah. life is gonna force you into that eventually. Yeah. Uh, and so let's say someone like me who, after I graduate, if I wanted to get training in IST, what does that look like? Well, that's a good question. Uh, right now, there are a number of graduate programs, uh, mainly in marriage and family therapy discipline, that have an IST focus uh, but that's not what you're doing. Tell me again, you're going to graduate with what degree? Yeah, I'm getting a PsyD in clinical psychology. A PsyD, okay. And is there any emphasis in your PsyD curriculum to cover things that are systemic or integrative? Not that I know of. <laughs> yeah. Well... You can't do everything at once. There, there was a time when there were like 200 postgraduate programs in the country. And you could go all over the, anywhere in the country and get further training once you had your qualifying degree under your belt. Hmm. They all dried up in the 80s, and there's only a couple left. Uh, and they've diversified. Like, we still exist. We used to be a freestanding institute with a postgraduate training program. Uh -huh. We brought on board a graduate program, and now that's our main uh, focus. We have an online, we have four programs, two online in the counseling program, two uh -huh. online in the marriage and family therapy program, and we have like a 1,000 students uh, enrolled in those programs. But uh -huh. I think for you, if you're interested in pursuing IST beyond uh, graduate school, it's on the drawing board for us to put together a postgraduate program, okay. and maybe the time is right to really make that happen. Okay. Uh, maybe the the wheel has come full circle, <laughs> and enough people are graduating and saying, "Hey, they taught me how to do this model of therapy," mm -hmm. but I also know that, like Orlinsky has said, I'm headed toward an integrative perspective. So the sooner I get there, the better therapist I'm going to be. Mm, yeah, okay. Okay, that's good to know. So your uh, a lot of this message um, could be geared toward people who are looking to go into a grad program. Um, 
your university is one that is specifically going to offer IST and train people up in that model? Well, we do at the level of the graduate programs okay. now. Yeah. Uh, but we have a postgraduate training program that you can enroll in. That would be an option for you. Uh, it's a two-year program, I believe, uh, where the emphasis is upon IST. Hmm. You get supervision, you get classes, and uh, that may exist at other places around the country as well. Uh-huh. Um, uh, yeah, just uh, just thinking about, okay, for people who listen to this and they, they're pumped up and they want to go to some good training, uh, who is this message directly for? Like, can can someone who's out of grad school then get training and supervision in this? Or is it mostly for people looking to go into grad school? Yeah, just thinking about that. I think this should help people think through what kind of graduate program do I yeah. want to have. Yeah. And I do believe that the pendulum is to some extent swinging back toward uh, a more inclusive way of thinking about therapy mm. uh, with less emphasis upon evidence-based practice. Mm. Uh, you know, it's my personal opinion that the field of psychotherapy sold out to the medical model and decided we have to prove that what we do works uh, and so we're going to have these evidence-based treatments. We're going to undergo randomized clinical trials to prove that they work. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole list of them out there that you can look at. But if you say to yourself, I'm just going to go to the school that teaches an evidence-based practice, uh, you're still going to find yourself in the same dilemma of what do I do when I get all these cases uh-huh. where my model doesn't serve me well. And you will, inevitably. You're just talking about, in your opinion, like sold out to the medical model. Is it, can that be included? or? Yeah, you could include it. I, I think it's absolutely true. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We wanted to be part of the club, and the price we paid was to take what was precious about hmm. family therapy in the first place, a paradigm shift. Uh-huh. Uh, we tried to make it. It the field was, I think, in my opinion, we had too few people to compete with the monsters like the APA and the, mm-hmm. well, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, even yeah. to some extent the Social Work Association. We were just a little blip on the screen and in no way powerful enough to push a paradigm shift that would have turned the the course of psychotherapy toward a more systemic uh, understanding of the human problem. Uh I wanted to mention this earlier, um, but one thing I found really interesting, in the book there was a model of so direct and indirect clients. So if you have your couple, let's say, and you're meeting with them face-to-face, that's your direct client. But indirect client could be their children or their parents or anyone that's also involved in their little system right you're not yeah they're going to be impacted by that right so i thought i just wanted to highlight that i thought that was really uh a a key takeaway for me is to think about yeah like i'm not just these people don't exist in a vacuum (laughs) yeah you know diana has a case now that's a good representation of the indirect system where she works with a couple uh, they're very committed to one another. Uh-huh. The husband in this case is in a protracted divorce, and the divorce is so ugly uh, that it's constraining the quality of life of the couple that she sees hmm. uh, because he's always going off the court. He's always being subpoenas. He's always giving depositions, and it's really breaking things down to the point where they're talking about is it really viable for us to be in this relationship because by the time this divorce is done, we could be 80 years old. Yeah. Uh, there's no simple way to live life in the modern world. So very common experiences where 
you're working with uh, a couple. They have a kids. It's a post-divorce. The kids go see their mother or their father on some frequency. Uh, they come back. They may have a good relationship. The exes, they may not. But this could have a major, major impact upon how the immediate family functions. And so you might have to bring the exes in. You might have to bring the spouse of the exes in uh, and work with them in order to get the, the problem sequence to settle down. Because the problem sequence isn't just something that's happening in the here and now. It's something that's happening within the cycle of visitation that exists for that particular case. When you talk about the problem sequence, is that do the way you kind of narrow it down, in my mind, it would be like the antecedent, the behavior and the consequence. Kind of like that. Is that how you kind of narrow down the problem sequence? Well, one of the things that we created as part of the, the sequences pillar was a classification system for sequences. So... Yeah, the the smallest kind of sequence we call an S1, that involves face-to-face interaction. You know, that's something that you can see unfold in the conflict style of a couple or an argument that a mother's having with a teenager. Uh, But within that sequence is embedded within the routine of the family. So the coming and going according to the circadian rhythm of the family is very important and you know, arguments occur most frequently trying to get kids off to the school, trying to get them to do their homework, trying to get them to go to bed. Uh, and those sequences, the circadian sequences, are embedded in this longer sequence of S3, an example of which is what I just said, the visitation schedule for the kids. But it can be an anniversary reaction. It could be episodic violence. It can be episodic alcoholism. Uh, And then the final sequence, which is a transgenerational sequence, simply says that, you know, Bowen was right. Things get passed down from generation to generation, and you got to take that into account. So when you say the antecedent consequence, yes, but that antecedent may be related in the sequences in a very complex way. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah, It's, it's a lot more complicated than just let's look at this. Uh, problem sequence in a vacuum. Yes, you you, <laughs> you just can't do that. Well, um, is there uh, is there anything that we haven't really that we haven't touched on that you are hoping to get to, or is there anything that you would like to mention before we kind of wrap up? Uh, well, I think you know the way that IST has been created creates the semblance that uh, we draw from the models of therapy and that our solution sequences are always based on some evidence-based practice. Uh, That's only part of what you do. Sometimes what becomes a solution sequence comes from your experience as a therapist, comes from your intuition, comes from something the couple suggests that might help them with what they're trying to resolve. And so you go with that according to the fit that it has with their eagerness to do it, their ability to do it, and their willingness to do it. Yeah, so in that sense, it's much more uh, individualized, much more client-led. Right. And, you know, people love, I I supervise a guy that maybe has four years of experience and, you know, he says all the time, you know, this is so embedded in your 45 years of practice that you don't even think about how you arrive at a solution sequence. You just follow the lead of the clients and get there. So, yeah, I think this is not an easy model to practice as a beginner. It requires experience. It requires building up a data bank of uh, your own uh, outcomes. And over time, you'll you'll just get more and more comfortable. And it really is an enjoyable way to do therapy because it's not a cookie cutter approach where what you have to do is follow a manual and do the same thing the same way every single time. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds very enjoyable in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I, I would much rather practice a model of therapy like that than one where I'm going in like, okay, this is what we're discussing today. And I have already got the plan kind of regardless of here's my manualized version. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, Douglas, thank you so much for, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I thank you. look forward to learning more about IST and reading some of the books that you guys have coming up that you have planned. Well, what I will send you sometime in the next couple of days is we put together a, a list of all the publications that are related to IST. And oh, okay. It's pretty extensive. Okay. There's probably 50 papers out there, chapters and books, books. Uh, that have IST as their focus. So I don't know if there's a way to post that online or yeah. let people have access to it, but it could, you know, get them involved in the literature in one way or another. And yeah, I'll try and link that in the descriptions uh, below the video. Okay, sounds yeah. good. Yeah, appreciate right. it. Well, good talking to you, Daniel. It was very enjoyable for me. You did a great job of uh, guiding my, my mind through this, and I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you as well. Okay, you take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.